right ramblers let's get rambling my name is steve thank you for listening so here it is it's my first podcast for me these films are the juice i've spent a lot of time thinking about this and how i want it to sound uh, what the layout's going to be how i'm going to promote it how i'm going to make it hopefully how many people will listen to it um really enjoyed it i'm really excited to be doing it for the first time one thing that i didn't put a lot of thought into was what the first film was going to be that i was going to talk about yeah it was a really easy decision it's a film that i've always said is my favorite film watching it back again i don't know if it is actually but we'll we'll talk about that it's a film that reinvented some careers it's a film that took other careers on a com- onto a completely different level and it was a film that was a complete cultural phenomenon when it came out and is still highly influential to this day like i say it was an easy decision for me to make um to choose this film i was in a cafe with my wife uh, when i told her about it and when i said i was doing this film she then across the table to me she called me pumpkin I called her honey bunny she gave me a big kiss and she reached around into her handbag she pulled out a gun there was a guy sat next to us eating a Denver omelette she stuck a gun in his face very romantic so here we go Pulp Fiction let's do it As I said, I've always said that Pulp Fiction is my favourite film, um, and it's always been my kind of like go-to uh, as my favourite film. Watching it again, you know, I still I still do love it. I still think it's brilliant. Um, really enjoy it. A lot funnier than than I remember it being. Um, I always thought it was a funny film, but I, yeah, I was really laughing a lot at it this this time I watched it around again. I remember it. First knowing about it when, um, in the summer of 94, I went to watch the film The Mask three times at the cinema and the Flintstones film with John Goodman twice in the cinema. Um, and I remember seeing the poster for the Pulp Fiction in the then just vividly, just really remember that poster really st- kind of really standing out in the theremin lying on the, on the bed with that, um, that kind of black, um, hairdo that hairstyle that she had going on um so yeah I always remember I always remember that and then um I don't remember when but somehow it ended up in our house on VHS I think my brother must have got it for for us definitely not a film that my my dad would have bought I don't think um and uh so yeah like I say so that was 94 so I'd have been eight or nine years old and then uh yeah I just remember the the VHS being being around for a long time um but of course you know I was a I was a very good boy um I saw that it was an 18 so no 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 I'm not allowed to watch that I'm not allowed to watch that um but then when I got to about 13 14 years old that's when I kind of probably really started um understanding films better and getting more of an interest in films I remember watching it at that age it was structured I love the kind of the three the three acts and how they kind of all interlinked. Um, I remember really enjoying that about it. And I remember always thinking, 
what a detestable character John Travolta was, which he is. You know, he's, even you watch it now, he's you know he's a he's a vile human being, but God, he's funny uh, in it, and it's a really um, it's a really great performance actually. I remember what, like watching it this time, just being really captivated by him and and everything he does in it. Um, you know, he just has everything. He's over the top. He's funny. Um, he he's emotional. Um, he's subtle at times. Um, yeah, no, I just it's a really really good good performance. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that this time. So that's kind of like a little bit about yeah how I kind of found the film and um how I kind of got into it so much. Um, and yeah, some of the basics, uh, about the film. So obviously it's written and directed by, by Quentin Tarantino. It's produced by his, um, producing partner for, for Reservoir Dogs, uh, Lawrence Bender. And, um, it was, I mean, Reservoir Dogs, I think had a budget of around about 1.2 million. It was a real, um, proper kind of independent film. Um, made a little bit more than that. This Pulp Fiction, they still always say, was a was an independent film, but kind of wasn't really. Um, it was produced by two um, two production companies, A Band Apart, which is Bender and Tarantino's, was Bender and Tarantino's production company, and Jersey Films, which is da- Danny DeVito's um, production company. And it was distributed by Miramax, who had just um, signed an agreement with uh, Disney at that time, so um, they ended up getting a, a budget of eight point five million for the film, uh, and it ended up making two hundred thirteen million dollars. This is worldwide uh, when it went when it came out in the cinema. So um, obviously, did very well back on its back on its budget. Um, you read a lot about the film and the, and the budget to it, and what Tarantino's thoughts were on it. And he said that he wanted to make uh, an 8.5 million budget film, but make it look 25 or 30, 30 million. Um, which I think he probably did, to be honest with you. Um, one way they were able to do that and stretch out the the budget for the film, because even though, you know, obviously 8.5 million dollars is a lot of money, it's um, in terms of making a film, even back in 1994, um, was, you know, kind of a slim budget. Um, one of the ways that they managed to, to kind of stretch that out was working out a, um, a way of paying the actors actually. So basically everyone in the cast was paid the same amount of money. So instead of Bruce Willis, obviously being the, the biggest star at the time, being paid a kind of astronomical, um, fee for being in the film, uh, every actor was paid 20 grand per week. For being in the film, um, John Travolta got the most money being there, uh, kind of on set the longest seven weeks, so he got one hundred and forty thousand. Which again, you know, no one's going to sniff at that at all. But obviously, being a, a Hollywood actor, they're they're going to use to more money than that. Um, so that was one way they were able to kind of stretch the budget out. Apparently, though, the main cast did also get a percentage of the profits that the film made. So, you know. The poor guys that only got 20 grand a week, they ended up doing pretty well at the end of it anyway. And yeah, I only realised this week it's actually the 21st anniversary of the film being released for the first time. Um, 
It was released on the 14th of October 94 in the US and the 21st of October 94 in, in the UK. Um, so yeah, uh, happy coincidence of being quite quite timely to do a podcast on, on Pulp Fiction. Um, so yeah, obviously, you know, many say this is um, still to this day Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece. I think I was thinking about that actually, and as I was watching the film, thinking, no, this this isn't my favorite film, um, and I'll go into why that is when I talk about it. But one th- one thing I did keep thinking about was um, was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and how much I loved that film when I when I saw it in the cinema, and uh, I've seen it a couple of times since then as well, actually, and I always. And I always think about it. It's always a film that I'm kind of like, oh, I have to watch that again. Um, so I think that might actually be his, be his ultimate masterpiece. You know, he's Tarantino's always said that. You know, um, I think he said he's only going to write and direct ten films. I'm pretty sure Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was his ninth. So potentially, his next film is his last one. Whether that's the case or not, I don't know. But, but yeah, obviously, Pulp Fiction is is way up there. Um, but yeah, in my opinion, I think maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is his actual masterpiece. Um, <clears throat> he, so I think you know the story of Quentin Tarantino is is quite well known. But um, so he was a um, complete film geek nerd, um, wannabe actor, wannabe filmmaker. Um, he worked in a uh, video shop in LA where he just gorged himself on as many films as he could watch. He has an, ex- an encyclopedic memory for, for films. Um, you often hear actors say that, um, you know, to get ready for certain scenes in films or to, to get ready for the character they're going to play, he says, all right, watch, the, watch this scene from this film. Um, watch this scene from this um, Italian New Wave film from the 1950s or watch this exploitation film or the spaghetti western or he just he has just a vast knowledge of of movie history and um so yeah he worked at this video store and he was as he kind of says before himself he he had his nose right up against the kind of the glass of of hollywood trying to get in um and eventually he did um he wrote and sold the um well, he wrote a, a script um, for the film Natural Born Killers, um, which he ended up selling for, for $10,000. Um, he's credited on that film as writing the story because it was heavily changed by um, uh, Oliver Stone when he came to make the film. Uh, and then he received um, $50,000 each for True Romance and Reservoir Dogs for the scripts of those films. Um, and it was basically one of these ones where he wanted to, to direct one of them. Um, so he ended up directing, obviously, Reservoir Dogs. And um, and obviously he was in that film. He directed it. Uh, he got the money from, from writing the scripts. Um, so obviously he established himself as a, as a bit of a name. Um, so then after the release and how well-received Reservoir Dogs was. Lawrence Bender and TriStar Pictures set aside $900,000 for him to to develop another film, which was going to turn out to be Pulp Fiction. Um, 
and uh, with the kind of the money that he'd made from the other scripts, he went to Tarantino went to Amsterdam. It sounds like for quite a few months. Um, obviously, somewhere where he wanted to kind of get in the mindset uh, to write this film, and uh, yeah, and that's where he wrote he wrote the script. Now, the idea was that he he always wanted it to be kind of a three act film. The idea of him writing one act. Um, Roger Avery, his friend who he worked with at the video store to write the second one um, and uh, someone else to write the third one. Now, the third person to, who were going to write the, the third act never materialised. Um, so Tarantino wrote the first one and the third one and then Roger Avery wrote the um, what turned out to be the 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 second act with with Bruce Willis and um kind of the boxer and the gimp and everything. Um now it just kind of goes to show you what kind of the uh the ego and the desire to be a big name um that uh that Tarantino had. If you look at um Reservoir Dogs, uh it says in the in the credits, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Now he wanted to have the same thing for Pulp Fiction, but it would have been written by Quentin, directed by Quentin Tarantino, written by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Now, obviously, we no one knows the the kind of the real truth behind everything. Tarantino says that he had to make a lot of changes to the. The second act that Roger Avery had written, um, so therefore he pretty much wrote the whole film himself. Whereas Avery says that he gave the the film to him, he gave the second act to him. Sorry, um, as it was put in the film. What um, what Tarantino did was he paid Roger Avery twenty five thousand dollars for the second act, and then just after filming had started. Roger Avery got a letter from Tarantino's uh, lawyers demanding that he take a story by credit so that Tarantino could be credited as written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. He could have that top billing um, as this book of basically making himself into an author, you know, um, this, he, written, he wrote and directed Reservoir Dogs, wrote and directed Pulp Fiction, with those two films under his belt, he's then, he can pretty much do whatever he wants to do. He, you know, anything he writes, he'll direct. He gets all the credit for it. Um, so yeah, apparently, obviously, there was some resistance, but eventually Tarantino got his, got his way and and um, and that's how it was. Um, so it's just kind of, I, I mentioned that because there's quite a few, there's quite a few things within the film that... Um, are those those Tarantinoisms um, that are coming into his second film? The things that you pick up that are him creating his own universe uh, of films um, and of characters and of stories, and that they'll link back to each other. Um, you really pick it up a lot in in Pulp Fiction, especially looking back at it again. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of the that's kind of how I came to the film. That's kind of the the nuts and bolts of of kind of how it was um how it was developed so um 
so yeah let's get into the film and um i'll add in a couple of bits here and there of kind of casting and and things like that so uh so yeah let's get uh let's get started so the film opens with the definition of the word pulp uh so two definitions first one a soft moist shapeless mass of matter um now i'd say that's foreshadowing of a of an incident later in the film um involving john travolta his gun and Mar poor marvin in the back seat of the car um obviously it's quite a big moment scene uh set piece within the film um so i think it's just a bit of foreshadowing for that and number two a magazine or book containing lurid subject matter and being characteristically printed on rough unfinished paper um which obviously this film is based on um pulp well what one of the one of the inspirations for it is kind of pulp novels um I'd imagine it's a reference to the book that John Travolta continuously takes in the um in the toilet with him as well, um at important moments in the film, um so yeah just I think setting the tone a bit of foreshadowing for things that are going to happen, um a little bit later on. Then we cut to the coffee shop where we have uh, Amanda Plummer, uh, or Honey Bunny and tim roth or ringo or um pumpkin um sitting together and tim roth trying to explain to amanda Plummer about moving away from robbing liquor stores and gas stations and um maybe trying their hand at a, a restaurant or a coffee shop so a few things i just kind of picked up here is yeah, it's it's Quentin Tarantino's second film, and his second film is starring in a similar location to his first film, Reservoir Dogs. It's starring in a in a cafe, a coffee shop. Um, this one obviously doesn't have the Madonna uh, conversation or anything um, kind of popular culture uh, like that, um, but it is more of a they're discussing, you know, part of the plot of the film. You know what they're gonna do and um, uh, what they're gonna do while they're at this restaurant. Um, another thing I picked up was, I think it's just, I think it's got two, th two things to it. I, I really noticed the, the part where Amanda Plummer is really overly friendly with the waitress who, who comes over to her and looks, looks at her really nicely, really makes a point of saying thank you to her. Um, I think it kind of, I think it kind of demonstrates the, um, the character of, um, Honey Bunny being obviously quite unhinged. Um, kind of acting like that with the waitress, but also at the same time, um, you know, remember back to, to Reservoir Dogs again, you know, the whole conversation about being nicer to, to waitresses, um, tipping better, treating them well. Um, so I think that's kind of maybe partly to do with it as well. Um, Tim Roth swears an awful lot in this start bit. I just, I forgot how much he, he swears in it. So I was really kind of caught every other word. I was, um, yeah, I just uh, don't remember quite how much he did. He did swear in that bit. Before it ends, you kind of really get the the idea that that they're both sociopaths. Um, you know, Amanda Plummer says that kind of unconvincingly that you know she doesn't want to kill anybody, um, and then Tim Roth 
starts discussing how he doesn't want to kill anybody either. But at the end of the day, he kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, we'll be put in the situation where it's us or them. Tarantino kind of, it was a, it was quite, the camera work was quite back and forth between the two of them before that point. But at this point, he's starting to really slowly zoom in on Tim Roth's face as he's discussing the scenario where... Um, it might happen that they might come to to kill someone. Um, you know, he's using a lot of uh, racist language um, while he's doing it as well. Um, as they swearing a lot. Um, you obviously already know that they're they're robbers, so you're getting kind of the idea of the, these characters are getting built out um, as to kind of who who they are really. Um, makes you kind of hark back a little bit to some of the other characters that. Tarantino's written about in his other films, obviously in Natural Born Killers, you've got a, a couple that go on a killing spree. In True Romance, you've got a, a couple that um, steal a suitcase full of heroin and try to make their fortune. So, you know, Tarantino's got these trends that that run through his films. And uh, yeah, I think it's a bit of a continuation of that here in this scene as well. And, um, and yeah, just that bit where... Uh, Tim Roth says about robbing the um the restaurant. You know, it's almost like uh, Amanda Plummer's kind of turned on by it at that point. Um, just the look on her face, the way she says, "Pretty smart." Um, and she just turns around and says, "I'm ready. Let's do it right here, right now." It's almost like, oh, you know, she's ready. It's either ready to to rob the place or ready to have sex right there. Um. And then uh, obviously it ends with um, Amanda Plummer's amazing craziness and, and crazy line as well. Um, and then yeah, film started. We kicked off, and it's uh, it's definitely got your um, definitely got your attention. So now after the um, after two great needle drops, two brilliant songs uh, in the introduction, uh, you come to Samuel Jackson and John Travolta in the car. Um, and this is where you have the the more of the dialogue that isn't driving the plot along at all. It's it's just kind of John Travolta's character has just come back from Amsterdam and he's describing the differences between Europe and the US, talking about the uh, legalization of hash in um, in Amsterdam. Obviously, that's where the uh, inspiration must have come from, where uh, Quentin Tarantino was writing the script. Um, but yeah, this is the kind of, you know, the Madonna, um, like a virgin section from Reservoir Dogs in, in Pulp Fiction, where they're, they're talking about the, uh, the Royale with cheese and such. Um, one thing I kind of picked up in this one was, sorry, this time around watching it, was, this might just be me, but I, I kind of got a sense that Travolta was... Or maybe Tarantino wrote it this way. Um, he was slightly harking back to um, Tony Manero in or Manaro in um, Saturday Night Fever when he um, when he says to um, to Jules that it's illegal it's illegal for um, the police in Amsterdam to to search you and kind of just the benefits of you know the legalization of um, uh, of cannabis in in Amsterdam. Um, Jules says, oh, I'm going, I'm going, I want to go there. John Travolta starts laughing and, he's, and he just, he turns and he says, um, 
yeah, man, you dig it the most. And it just made me think, there's that line from Saturday Night Fever, um, him and his friends kind of say, can you dig it? I know that you can. Um, I told you these impressions would be terrible. Um, so yeah, it just kind of made me think of, of that a little bit, watching it, watching it this time around. Again, that might just be, um, that might just be me. Um, obviously, as I say, the Royale with cheese, it's a great line. Um, and then we cut to another Tarantinoism, the, um, the shot from the, the boot of the car, um, up at, uh, Samuel Jackson and, and John Travolta. Um, and then they're walking into, uh, to the, to the apartment block to go up to the poor guy's, um, poor guy's apartment. And they start having the conversation about, um, uh, Mia Wallace, who we haven't met yet. And the foot massage conversation, which always, always makes me laugh. Just the, the interaction between them, between them both, um, is hilarious. Just the way that Samuel Jackson turns around to, um, to John Travolta when he says it's, um, it's the same ball, it's in the same ballpark. And Sam Jackson just turned around and said, ain't no melon farming ballpark neither. Um, I'm going to try and not swear too much on this, uh, on this podcast. So I'll, I'll throw in a few, um, kind of replacement, replacement lines here and there. Um, yeah, so just, just great kind of, uh, great kind of chemistry between, uh, Travolta and Jackson, I think here. Um, so then obviously they get into the apartment. Um, a couple of things on, on this one. One thing I kind of picked up this time is if you look at where Sam Jackson stands, um, in the apartment, you can see over his, over his shoulder, you can see the curtains, um, of the apartment. Now just where the, the kind of curtain pole is, or the, or the curtain rail is and the curtain pole. Um, when I was looking at it, I was like, oh, wow, that looks like the crucifix on, on the wall there, which I'd never noticed before. It's not, but that's kind of just exactly how it looks. It, may, it makes a cross, but it, it's kind of like a crucifix kind of, you know, it's kind of 3D comes out from the wall. That's kind of how it looked, um, I thought. So I just thought that was slight, that, that might, again, that might just be me reading too much into it. But um, yeah, I just thought maybe that was a bit of foreshadowing for um, when we come back to that scene later in the film. Um, I mean, Sam Jackson in this, in this scene is just, um, it's just incredible. You know, the way he controls the situation, um, the way he mixes up how he interacts with the guys, friendly, authoritative, raises his voice, lowers his voice, um, you know, pretends to let a couple of personal things out. And my girlfriend's a vegetarian. That kind of makes me a vegetarian too. Um, but the the thing that I really, I think I've always kind of picked this bit up anyway. But just the way he asserts control of the whole situation, and lets the guys know that he's not. They're not going to kind of get away with whatever they've done. However, they've screwed over um, Marcellus Wallace. Is he takes a he asks for a bite of the of the burger and then he asks for a sip of the drink now when he's having that drink um it's just a close up on his face and just the way he is staring just staring uh, not blinking just staring straight at um brett um 
well, he finish, he completely finishes his drink right to the end. It just kind of just completely asserts his dominance, and it's just the I don't know the scariest anyone's ever looked uh, drinking a sprite. I think, um, and again, it kind of I think you know the way Travolta and, and Jackson are dressed, you know, with the black suits, the white shirts, the black ties. Um, uh, you know, similar to how the guys are dressed in Reservoir Dogs. It's this guy drinking a, you know, drinking a um, a fast food drink or eating some fast food in a situation where maybe you wouldn't expect that to happen like Michael Madsen does in um, in Reservoir Dogs. It's just just all these kind of callbacks to um, to Tarantino's other films and, um, yeah, just kind of setting up these, these Tarantino-isms or the Tarantino universe, as, as kind of I mentioned earlier. Um I think another thing that you pick up in, in this scene as well, again, which I'd not really noticed before, is when when Travolta's opened the, the case um and has seen whatever's whatever's in there. And um Jackson's gone through the whole um uh his whole <laughs> his whole thing of um what does Marcellus Wallace look like? And just the way he when Brett says he's black, just the way <laughs> just the way that Jackson goes, Go on It cracks me up every single time. Um asks him if he looks like a bitch, uh what's a place I've never heard of, do they speak English and what? Um just all that kind of stuff is just great. But um one thing I'd never noticed before that I noticed this time around is when he when Jackson says to to Brett, um, do you read the Bible? If you look the the way that they shoot it, Travolta comes around from the from the kitchen. So he's standing kind of right behind Brett. And he puts out his cigarette and he gets his gun out ready and he just holds it just in front of himself because he knows what's coming. Um you know, um Jackson says at the end of the film, he says he does the quote to to Tim Roth and he says, if you've ever heard that, that's that means you're ass, that means you're dead. Um so obviously these two have worked together many years before and, and Travolta knows what's coming. So as soon as he hears him say the line, you read the Bible, Brett, he's there ready to um to kill the guy, basically. So it just kind of builds up another bit of their of their relationship, I think, and and how long they've worked together. Um and then we go to Vincent Vega, Marcellus, Wallace's wife. Um this is this is my favorite. This is my I've I've got I made the most notes uh, on this section of the film. Um, it's just great from the just the whole thing. The whole thing is is just absolutely brilliant. Um, so we start with the the drug deal. Um, uh, Rosanna Arquette talking to uh, to Trudy about uh, her piercings, um, and then. Uh, Travolta goes into Eric Stoltz, um, Lance's bedroom to do um, a heroin deal. And um, does anyone know why there are stilettos displayed all over the wall in um, in Eric Stoltz's room in this in this scene? Um, I didn't Google it or anything. It might just be a kind of an LA um, cultural thing. Maybe he's really into kind of disco music and platform shoes, but. Yeah, if anyone knows that, just just let us know. Um, so obviously they do the deal. Um, we get a little bit more information about how, um, you know, the way that 
obviously we've already seen Travolta kill someone, but when he's talking about how the, the guy's kill someone's keyed his car, um, and talking and relishing how he would have loved to have seen the person doing that and what he would have done to them. Um, yeah, we're just kind of getting a bit more of an idea of, you know, just how much of a, uh, yeah, kind of heartless, violent, um, person that, that Travolta is in this film. Um, the scene where it's intercut between, um, Vincent shooting up and driving to, to Mia's house, um, I think I thought that was really great. The music behind it was great. The um, the way in which they use the way in which they show, you know, his his bags all kind of worn that he keeps his kind of um, uh, that he keeps all his paraphernalia in the spoon. You know, he's obviously used it a million times before. Um, it's uh it's obviously yeah he's you know he's a heroin addict and it's it's kind of showing you this is a, a kind of normal routine for him but then that split with him in the car and he uses the stock footage behind so you know it just everything looks a bit off kilter when he's when he's driving um just makes it look like a kind of you know just it was just a good way of representing kind of you know, the spaciness and and the lack of reality and and how um the kind of mindset that um Travolta was in at that point um, I saw, I saw on, um, I used to watch, um, inside the actor's studio and on that Travolta said that how he played that scene. And he's also, um, he also described this in the, the Vanity Fair, um, uh, oral history of the film as well, actually, um, which you can find online. It's a really good read. He describes how, um, so Tarantino and Travolta both had their um, their own people that they recommended to that Travolta found and and Tarantino recommended to him to go and speak to who were former heroin addicts to talk to them to understand what heroin high feels like um, the the arc of the of the high um, you know how it how it affects people um, and kind of what you go through um, and Travolta said you know I wasn't gonna inject heroin to to find out what it feels like. So he said he asked one of the guys um, what the what the feeling is or how he could um, how he could understand what the feeling is. Is there anything he could do? And you know this is why I love and this is why kind of you know if I could be an actor it'd be amazing. You know imagine doing this as a piece of research for a job that you have to do. This um, former heroin addict told John Travolta that he needed to get uh, absolutely hammered on tequila, and then lie in a warm. Uh, bath or pool or hot tub uh, looking up at the sky and then that would give him the you know just a sense of of what it feels like to to be on heroin um imagine doing just having to having to do that as a you know piece of preparation work you've got to do for your job just you know i mean we're in the wrong business um so apparently that's he the feelings he felt at that time um he, he put that into well this whole um, this whole part of the film, but especially in, in that bit where he's he's driving to to meet Mathurin for the first time, um, the bit where he gets to um, Mia's house, such a great scene. There's not a lot that happens in it, but I was watching it and I was just there's so much going on. Um, sorry, there's there's not a lot happening, but there's loads happening at the same time. Um, 
so he gets there there's a note from Mia already telling him kind of you know to, to come in make himself a drink um he's just she's just getting ready so you know she's trying to take control of the situation straight away um he goes he goes in she kind of she comes over the speaker he's all disheveled um she kind of takes the piss out of him by saying he, she needs to press the button on the intercom to talk to her um she's saying you know uh go make yourself a drink um you know she's making him uh wait on her she's watching him at the same time and he's just walking around that He's just walking around that front room and he's awkward and he's trying to act normal. He's obviously um, high, stoned. Um, the way he's, he's confused, um, you know, he's probably not feeling nervous because he's, he's high, but there must be a little bit there still as well. He's taking his boss's wife out for a meal. Um, so, yeah, the way he kind of just like tries to lean on the, on, the, um, on the mantelpiece and everything, the way he sniffs the drink before he pours it in. It was, it was just great, great stuff. I just think it was, that was a really good scene uh, where, like I say, there was not a lot happening, but um, it was setting up a lot of, a lot of good stuff. Um, there's a deleted scene from just after that, actually, before, after that bit where she speaks to him on the intercom and then they arrive at, at Jack. Oh, and also it's great, um, great song in the background as well. Uh, Son of a Preacher Man, which reminds me of my mum. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant song. Um, she loved Dusty, she loves Dusty Springfield. Um, and, uh, yeah, there was a, there was a deleted scene that, um, Tarantino took out at this point because, um, the deleted scene is Uma Thurma comes in and she's got a, a video camera and she's, um, she's basically interviewing, um, uh, interviewing, uh, Vincent and, um, I can't remember the whole thing. I remember it kind of goes on for, for a while. I think that's why Tarantino took it out, but. One bit in it is that she says, um, you know, there's two two types of people in the world, those who love the Beatles or and those who love Elvis. Um, and just from looking at Vincent, it's easy to tell which one Vincent is. Um so obviously I say that was a deleted scene, but then they turn up at Jack Rabbit Slims and um he's saying, Oh come on, let's go somewhere else for a steak. And um Mitherm says, Oh come on, you'll like this place. An Elvis man should love it, and um, yeah, she does the the square thing on the on the screen. Um, that comes back later on in uh, in Kill Bill. She makes a square with her finger when she's talking to to Vanita Green. Um, then yeah, so then they get into um, into Jack Rabbit's limbs, and just that kind of the that that kind of tracking mm -hmm. shot where they're walking in. Um, where they're walking into the restaurant. I mean, they should make a Jackrabbit's Limbs here in Plymouth, definitely. I go to that place all the time. Uh, it looks amazing, especially if you can sit in there. Um, sit in one of the Cadillacs. Was it Cadillac? I don't know if they have the power cars. Um, so, yeah, no, love that place. Um, another fact I found out, actually, was that this scene was the most expensive part of the film. Um it, it took them a hundred. It was they spent one hundred and fifty grand on making, making the um, making Jack Rabbit Slim set. Um, so so yeah, they, they put a lot of um, lot of time and effort to making making that scene. So the way that they start to um, start to talk to each other, 
is it's funny, you know, he he heard she was in a pilot, she tells him about um she tells him about that. There seems to be another call well, a call back later on because um she says that she would have been the um the deadliest woman in the world with a knife. I'm pretty sure in Kill Bill 2 she describes herself the deadliest woman in the world with a gun. Uh, as well, so again, just another uh, foreshadowing thing for, for later in um, his career. Um, but the way they were interacting, I kind of I kept on noticing things. There's a lot of connections between the two of them. You know, they're they're kind of dressed very similar. She's wearing a white blouse. He's still in his, uh, she's got, you know, black, um, black trousers, she's got the black hair. Um, he's all still in his black suit, his white shirt black hair um you know she lets him use his use her straw um they both make a point of saying god damn when um he uh he tries her milkshake and then when she uh does coke in the toilet um he gives her one of his cigarettes that he's made um you know they're both they're both high both stoned um obviously when they're dancing there's a you know, mirroring thing going on. She's they're kind of following each other's lead a little bit. Um, so there's a lot of connections between the two characters in this in this whole scene. Um, and she's still trying to be in charge. You know, she's being quite she's being quite flirtatious with him. Um, he's potentially feeling a little bit uncomfortable about that. But at the same time, she's still showing a lot of vulnerability when she says that she doesn't want to tell him the joke from the um from the pilot that she made you know there's she's a bit embarrassed by it um the whole bit where she talks about the comfortable silences the way she the way she talks you know she's got a bit of venom in her in the way in her delivery when she says about um yakking about bs um that's when you know you found someone really special yeah there's just a real i don't know it's They've only just met, but there seems to be this real connection between between the two of them. Um, then, yeah, obviously she goes to the toilet, she comes back, they have a little chat, and then comes to the twist contest. Again, she's still trying to, to be in charge. Make sure you dance good. We're going to dance. Um, and then, yeah, they go into the dance scene, which obviously is amazing. Um Michael Madsen was was supposed to play the the part of, of Vincent Vega. Um, he played um, Vic Vega in Reservoir Dogs. In the Tarantino universe, Vic Vega and Vincent Vega are brothers. Um, but, uh, yeah, Michael Madsen was doing Wyatt Earp and he couldn't, couldn't get off it, so he couldn't do the film. So that's when um, Travolta offered the part to... Um, sorry, that's when Tarantino offered the part to Travolta. Um, he offered him this, and he also offered him from *Dust Till Dawn* as well. I don't know. If, I think it. I think it was the um, the George Clooney character. He, he offered to, to him from *Dust Till Dawn*, but um, to quote John Travolta, he's not a vampire guy. Um, he's a Scientologist guy, but he's not a vampire guy. That would that's ridiculous. Um, so uh, yeah, so he's um, so going back to the to the dancing. Obviously, in Reservoir Dogs, Michael Ma- Michael Madsen dances when he cuts the guy's ear off, and now Tarantino's written a scene where that character that you wanted uh, Michael Madsen to play dances. Um, Michael Madsen can't do it, so who who does he get instead? John Travolta. What's one of the most famous things John Travolta is known for? 
dancing in Greece and of course in, in Saturday Night Fever as well. So you kind of got this thing where you you're playing with the the iconography of the actor. You know, there's lot the actors bringing his um what people know uh, what people know about him to to the scene as well. Um, and just I, I'm no dance expert in any way whatsoever. Um, you know, I love to dance. Who doesn't? But um, but no, not not a dance expert at all. Um, but um, I mean, he's dancing. He's dancing on point at first. You know, he's literally on his tiptoes. Um, and he got you know he's got all the rhythm in the world. And Uma Thurman, <laughs> Uma Thurman, bless her, the way she's the way she's um, the way she's playing with it, playing it. You know, she's really, really going for it. I mean, obviously, she's trying to dance like someone who's who's on cocaine as well. So there's, there's obviously that coming into it too. But I just kind of get the sense that she's just like, I'm dancing with, I'm dancing with John Travolta. I need to give it some here. So she's, you know, she's really, really going for it. Um, and obviously, you know, we talk about the flirtation and everything. They're dancing together. You know, they move up close to each other, locking eyes the whole time. They're mirroring each other. There's all sorts going on there. So obviously, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing scene. They get back to, to Mia's place and um, Travolta goes in the bathroom. He does a great, I, I love the bits just where he's talking to himself. He does some great talking to himself in the in the mirror acting here. A um, couple of great lines. You're just going to go home, JR, and that's all you're going to do. Um, so I thought that that was really good. Now when she ODs, is she, is she overdosing because she's just had too much? Obviously she's snorted a load of coke already in the night. And that literally she's had too much, or is it because she's snorting this really strong heroin that um, Eric Stoltz has sold to John Travolta? So is it more the strength of it, or is it more that she's done too much? Again, I'm not a drugs expert, so um, yeah. If anyone knows, please uh, please let us know. Um, so then obviously he rushes to um, uh, to Lance's house. Um, I love this scene as well. It's it's great. It's all. It's all handheld by um by, by Tarantino when um when Eric Stoltz is on the phone and he's telling um Travolta not to bring the um not to bring him Thurman there and then he's, he obviously and then he's really like oh I'm on the phone he's like um who is this I don't know you prank caller prank caller I think that's absolutely great um and yeah they don't cut for a long time it's a, it's a good couple of minutes where it's just kind of all like one one long scene um. I love the the way that um, Travolta and, and Stoltz are, are bickering with each other um, when they get when they bring him with Thurman into the house. That's brilliant. When um, when Lance is walking away uh, or rushing away to get the the adrenaline shot, um, he's walking past a couple of board games which are on the left, uh, and one of them is Operation and one of them is Life. Um, so um, so yeah. It's you know it's subtle it's a subtle non subtle thing you know it's the two board games are not subtle in there um what they're called but subtle because they're just at the side of the screen and that's the first time I ever noticed it before. Um, Travolta, I love how I've just written down here. I love how squeaky he gets. Um, the uh when he's gonna shout in some time. <laughs> I'm getting the when he says to Rosanna okay about getting the the marker. Um. Black pen, a, a fudging black marker. Um, it just it's it's funny. It makes me laugh. Um, and then you've got the 
Eric Stoltz doing the countdown for um, Travolta to give Uma Thurman the, the shot of adrenaline. Um, I almost thought it was a little bit good, the bad, the ugly-esque, this one. It was so slow, just cutting on, cutting to everybody's eyes, everybody's face. Obviously, there's no music, but it's building up that, ratcheting up that tension, ratcheting up that tension. Um, and then, obviously, that sound when the um, when the plunger goes in, it's oh, horrible. Um Rosanna Arquette, I think, is great here as well. Just her her reaction to it. She was so excited. The look of glee and um, on her face when uh, Travolta's got the, the needle up and everything. I think she plays it really well. Um, the car ride home. I mean, the makeup on Uma Thurman. I mean, she looks like... She looked like uh, Winona Ryder at the start of Beetlejuice. Just so... Just pale and wiped out. Um, yeah, so... And then, obviously, they get back. and um, that Kind of ends the scene, but... Yeah, no, that's um, yeah, that was brilliant. I love that that whole sequence. I thought that was amazing. I did say that uh, the um, the scene in Jack Rabbit's Slims, or the whole the whole sequence in Jack Rabbit's Slims, was my favorite part of the film, and it is. But this next uh, one-off scene is um, is a very close second, uh, where um, Crystal Walken comes into the film. I mean, my God, what a, just a amazing scene, just everything about it. Um, I mean, Christopher Walken has only been involved in two films, um, uh, by, done by Quentin Tarantino, True Romance, which he, which Quentin Tarantino wrote, obviously he was reading his lines. He's, for my opinion, the best film in, in True Romance is that scene between um, Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper, um, just some great stuff. Um and then this, and then he has this scene in Pulp Fiction, which just, you know, maybe, to, you know, if you were asked to pick two scenes from Quentin Tarantino films that you'd like to, that you'd like to do, it might just be those two, those two scenes. Um, I mean, he's incredible in both of them, but, um, you know, this is, this is where Tarantino is, and, and obviously you don't know who else is involved in, in terms of casting and, and things like that. But if it was that, if it was Tarantino's decision to to have Walken in this scene, um, which you'd imagine it is because of the way he wrote the scene um, and the way he films it, it, it does just kind of show how much how clever he really is. Because <clears throat> um, first of all, he's He's coming in as a Walken's coming in as a Viet, Vietnam veteran. Again, you talk about playing with the iconography of actors. He's he won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for playing um, uh, his character Nick Nicky in um, the Deer Hunter, a, a, a Vietnam veteran. Um, so again, just you know, bringing bringing in an actor who's got a certain bit of baggage with them or a certain thing you think about and and using that to to the benefit of of the film and the scene. And then just, you know, Tarantino knows that Christopher Walken is his own special effect. You know, the the way he talks, the way he looks, his eyes, his face, um, just everything about him. And the dialogue that he gives and the way he reads some of the, the way he says some of the words in this. It just, every single time, it just cracks me up. And um, just, yeah, just, uh, Wunaki, the Battle of Wake Island. You'd be damned. This is my um Chris Walken impressions. Um 
and just as well that he's just speaking so he's just speaking in such an intense way and some of the words that he's using he's speaking to a seven or eight year old um oh it's, it's just brilliant and um it's my first podcast so i'm slightly nervous about putting uh bits in from from the film this is why it's been mainly me talking but um yeah i've just got to put you know just my favorite line from the film in so um this is uh how christopher walken describes to a very young uh butch coolidge for a young um bruce willis character how um christopher walken and and butch's dad were able to to keep his dad's watch away from the um from the vehicle so he hid it in one place he knew he could hide something his ass five long years he wore this watch up his ass then he died of dysentery he gave me the watch i hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years um i'd highly recommend googling eddie Azard, christopher walken as well because he does a good impression of um well, actually, it's not a very good impression, but he does a very funny impression of, of Christopher Walken and, and uses part of that scene in it as well, which is very good. Um, so from there, we start on the second act, which is the watch. Now, I have like about three pages worth of notes for the um, Vince Vega Marcellus Wallace section. For this one, I've got about half a page. Um, I don't know. This is, I think this is the this is the section that just makes me realise it's not my favorite film anymore it's just kind of this it's just kind of this whole bit takes me out of the film especially this the start of it as well it, it really i feel i feel the film really slows down at this point um and as i say you know john travolta's character when i was a kid i always thought you know just such a vile character and everything i was quite happy when he died in it um but now kind of watching it again I just think it's such a good performance by Travolta. Yes, he is still a vile character, but he's still so funny in it as well. Whereas, um, whereas Butch, yeah, just not a not a very likable character at all. Um, uh, as as again, especially at the start of the of the scene, kind of redeems him, redeems himself a little bit more at the at the end. But um, yeah, it just kind of takes me out of it a little bit. So Butch obviously uh, wakes up from having the dream about Christopher Walken dropping the the watch off to him. Um, doesn't throw the fight like he was meant to as um marcellus wallace paid him to and um and yeah he's on the he's um obviously made some money from from bookies um putting money on him and yeah he's he's got to try and get out of um la with his uh with his girlfriend fabian um yeah, just kind of, as I say, just really slows the film down for me here at this point. Just kind of takes me out of it a bit. It was meant to actually be longer. The uh, Another deleted scene um, from this part is in when he's in the taxi with um, Esmeralda. That was a whole longer scene. Um, and it's already long, definitely long enough. So definitely a good decision to take that out. But yeah, it's, um, it made it, it would have made it very monotonous, I think, um, if that had been included in there. Um, I don't have any, I don't have many notes really. Um, other than, uh, yeah, he's speaking to his friend Scotty in Knoxville, who's got in the money. Put here, the film slows down. Uh, Butch, quite an unlikable character. And then I've kind of cut straight to, <laughs> um, I, I just realized I've glossed over the whole bit where um, Bruce Willis kills um, John Travolta uh, through the bathroom door. Um, I mean, that is, that is, I mean, that is really good, really good writing, obviously, just the way that whole thing plays out the sequence where he spots he puts the pop tarts down sees the 
sees the gun, turns the gun, here's the toilet flush, Pop-Tarts come up, shoots revolt. I mean, it's just the whole sequence is, is brilliant. Um, but yeah, not really much to, to kind of say on it. Um, when they, um, when they get to, um, when they get to the shop, uh, I don't know what kind of shop it is really, but when they get to the, to the establishment and, um, uh, Spider's found that he's just got himself a couple of flies and he gets on the phone to, um, to Zed. I mean, that bit always makes me laugh. It always makes me think of the, um, there's an episode of the Simpsons where, um, uh, police chief Wiggum is tied up and the, the guy with one arm, the old, um, Vietnam veteran who owns the, the store says that he's caught himself a couple of flies. This always makes me laugh. Um, bring out the gimp. That makes me think of a friend stag do where he was, um, he got dressed up as a gimp. Um, that was pretty funny. Uh, we had a, he had a lead coming off his, um, a collar around his neck. Uh, one of the guys in the stag do was really getting into the whole kind of dominatrix bit. He kept on, he insisted on leading him around and, you get them like yanking on the chain and calling him boy. Um, yeah, he was getting really into it. And then I ended up having a bit of a conversation with the with the stag at the bar. And it had been like, you know, it's a couple hours in, so I kinda of used to him dressed like a dressed like a um a gimp, but he was literally just standing at the bar talking to me, we we're having a chat, and every time he had to talk he had to unzip and then talk to me and then zip it back up again. Um so yeah, that always kind of makes me think of that. Just to get himself free. And this whole bit I was Watching it, I just started thinking it's it's the, you know, obviously it, as he's leaving the store, he looks back, he has a moment of conscience, he's like, I can't leave Marcellus, whatever's happening to him, I can't leave leave that happening to him, I can't can't just go go and leave him there. Um, and it harks back to the Christopher Walken bit, I think, you know. Um, this is his, this is um, Butch's Hanoi Pit of Hell. Um, that his dad always hoped that he wouldn't wouldn't be in. Um, Chris Walken talk about you know you're in a Hanoi pit of hell. You take on responsibilities for the person that you're with, um, and yeah, his he feels a responsibility to save Marcellus at this point, even though Marcellus wants to kill him. Um, obviously, a great bit where he's choosing his his weapon that he's going to use. Um, there's a lot of talk on the internet about you know what that's inspired from. It's you know they. they some people say each um, each weapon he chooses is a is a reference to another film, or or that scene is that bit is is from another film. Uh, so yeah, I'm not too sure, but you know that's um, that's obviously a great bit. And um, yeah, obviously he goes down, kills the the guy who owns the place, um, and yeah, there's it's a, it's a funny one because it's. Well, first of all, there's a great line by Ving Rhames playing Marcellus Marcellus Wallace when he says, "I'm gonna get medieval on your ass." That's a brilliant. That's a brilliant line. Um, and then the bit where he says that he's gonna let Bruce Willis go on two conditions: he doesn't tell anyone, and that he stays away from LA. And obviously, that's fine by Bruce Willis. It's it's funny. There's almost it's almost a sweet moment. It's a, there's almost like a, a quite a sweet moment there where. Butch walks out the room and then he looks back and Marcellus Wallace hasn't turned around and he gives him the weight. He kind of puts his hand up. Um, he doesn't even wave. He just puts his hand up. So it's like a, it's almost like a, 
thank you. Now get out of here. See you later. Take care. All in just raising a, a hand. It's quite like I say. It's quite a. It's quite a sweet moment. But then at the same time, you know, Bruce Willis has got blood all down his blood all down his shirt. He's just he stood next to a uh, a man dressed as a gimp, uh, who he's knocked out hanging from a chain. In front of him, there's a guy who he's just killed with a katana. Then you've got a guy in front of him who wants to kill him, who's just been raped, um, standing in front of him with his with his trousers down. And then in front of him, you've got the guy who um, who raped him, who's been shot the shot, shot in the crotch. So it's a it's a really horrible CD um, um, place setting venue. But it's got this little sweet moment in it. I just thought it was the, yeah, I just quite like the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of that, in that scene, um, and uh, and of course I do love the the end line to this to this scene as well. Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. It's a good way to end a end a scene. Um, and then we go to the to the Bonnie situation. Um, so. The, the first bit I noticed here, and I, I hate it when people notice these kind of things, so I'm, I'm a bit annoyed that I didn't notice this, but um, it might have been done on purpose, but there's a slight, it looked like there was a slight continuity error in the in the film because the bullet holes behind Jules and um, Vincent seem to already be there on the wall before um, the guy comes out and shoots, <laughs> shoots at them. Um, shouting, die, you melon farmers, die! Um. Yeah, so the bullet holes already seem to be there, and then he shoots, and then they're, they're still there. Um. So so yeah, I just noticed that that one thing. Uh, obviously they're having the conversation about uh, divine intervention. Uh, poor Marvin gets his his head blown off. <laughs> oh man, I shot Marvin in the face. Um, and then they obviously go to uh. To Jimmy's house to try and again, Travolta just in this bit where he goes all, all squeaky. It's not my fucking town, man. Um, just brilliant. And uh, so yeah, then they go to to Jimmy's place. The only thing I could think, well, there's two things I could think at this point. But one, I was like, how? Number one, how are Jules and Jimmy friends? I don't, I don't get how those two would be would be buddies. And two, um, oh, I'm sorry, it's Quentin Tarantino is a terrible, terrible actor. I'm just. The way he delivers his lines and the hand gestures and oh god, it's just, it's just awful. Um, I didn't think he was that bad as Mister Brown. He's not in that. He's not in Reservoir Dogs much, but in this bit, he just gave himself far too much to to do. I think. Um, another question. You know, what party is the wolf at at eight forty a.m. in the in the morning? You know, what what kind of party is that? Um, and also with. With Kaitel, I mean, why did he do those direct line, line adverts? You know, when I was when I first, to be fair, it, it kind of went away quite quickly. But when he was first, you know, Winston Wolf, I solved problems. I was just, Kaitel, oh, why did you have to do that? You know, what is it with you know him and De Niro and Pacino doing these terrible adverts? You know, in their, in their golden years, what's that about? Anyway, um, but yeah, I did forget about that quite quickly. The way Kaitel interacts with Jimmy, um, I thought was really good because it's very, he's very, um, I mean, he's a, you know, he's a kind of a 
father figure to everybody really um and he's a fixer and he's he's helping them out but the way he talks to to jimmy especially quentin tarantino's character i just thought it was very it was very representative of the kind of figure that harvey Keitel was or is in quentin tarantino's career you know reservoir dogs doesn't get made until um Keitel joins and they manage to get enough money for it and also Keitel insists that tarantino direct the film as well so you know he put a lot on the line and was was very influential in um establishing tarantino and, and getting that film made and um obviously you know i'm sure tarantino loves Kaitel for that so yeah it just kind of seemed like this whole character of someone who's a who's a fixer someone who everyone looks up to someone who's a bit of a father figure um is um yeah is very close with with jimmy in this in this film this scene as well so that kind of made sense um the um Tarantino saying that the, the the best their best sheets were from Aunt Ginny. I wondered if that was a reference to a few good men. There's an Aunt Ginny referenced in in that. Um and uh and yeah, I just you know, the, I think this is where the kind of the film kind of started to bring me in again when they're, you know, when cartels in it and they, they drop off the body and um the the scene between um Vincent and um and Jules in the back of the car where they're um oh where they're cleaning up the all the blood and everything is is hilarious and and Kytel's bit just after um Vincent has said that he doesn't like order you know orders being barked at him and he just turns around and it's great line he just says um so pretty please we should run on top clean the fudging car um so yeah so no that that kind of brought me back brought me back into the film quite a bit um then so then obviously Jules and Vincent go for go for breakfast um there's a line in this that I use every now and then myself um when Jules says uh, I don't dig on swine so I, I do dig on swine but when people don't have, say they don't like bacon or sausages that's that's something that I'll use um because I'm quite sad like that I do use film uh, lines from films in my everyday life um and and then yeah just this is just the end of this film is you know, if, if if Jackson hadn't done enough in the earlier scenes to to warrant a best act, best supporting actor nomination, I think this this last scene, well, these last couple of scenes really do because he just he just takes over the film from this point. Uh, I mean, quite literally, most of the dialogue is his, but he just the the way he the way he delivers his lines and the way he carries himself, you know, he do, he is just in charge of the of the rest of the film from from this point. Um, when him and Vincent are, you know, finishing the conversation, he says he's going to walk the earth. Um, the way he's talking to him, you know, it's like he's a preacher. He's a holy man. Um, the way he's carrying himself, the way he's holding his hands, the way he's talking, the way he's not getting, um, you know, he's unflappable. He's very certain. Even when um, uh, Vegas, Vince Vegas trying to, you know, trying to annoy him, trying to get him, trying to say that he's going to be a bum, you know, he just keeps very calm, keeps very certain, talks about having things like, you know, a moment of clarity. Um, yeah, he just, he just kind of plays that bit very well. It's very kind of, you know, someone who's, yeah, trying to insist that, you know, he's going to redeem himself and um, he's going to be a changed, a changed person from, from now on. Um, so yeah, he plays that, plays that bit very well. Um, the way that then we cut to Tim Roth and, 
um, Amanda Plummer and the way that he says, Tim Roth says, Garcon, coffee is different from the way he said it in the, at the start of the film. And um, the way that Amanda Plummer goes crazy uh, when she stands up and says, any of you fudging pigs move uh, is different from the way she says it at the start of the, the film as well. And I think that is because these two different bits are from different perspectives. So the fir- the very first bit of the film is Honey Bunny and Pumpkin's perspective of how this happens or how this situation happened. Um, whereas at the end of it, we're looking at it through the point of view of, of Jules. So he obviously remembers it slightly differently. So this, the lines are the same, but they're just delivered slightly different. And, and, it, and uh, so, yeah, so I, that's the kind of the, the take I took from that as well. Um, the little bit of back and forth before um, Jules takes the gun from um, from Ringo as as he starts to call him. Um, just Tim Roth, you know, what's in the case? The boss is dirty laundry. The boss makes you do his laundry when he wants it clean. Sounds like a shh job. Funny, I was thinking the same thing. Just, you know, great back and forth. Really enjoyed that bit. Um, and then... Yeah, I mean, just one final call back to to Reservoir Dogs again. You know, ends in a three way gun standoff where Tim Roth is the only one without a gun. Um, you know, they should have brought um, Steve Buscemi's buddy character into the uh, into the restaurant as a, as being a waiter unarmed as well, just to just to top it off. Um, the way that. Um, Jules is so cool with the whole situation and being in control of it and the way he talks to um to Tim Ross character. You you can he was talking earlier about how cool Winston Wolf was, um, and it just kind of feels like he's you know, there's been a big inspiration and influence on on Jules from from watching the way that um Winston Wolf um acts and, and takes charge of situations. And then um and then, yeah, the ending, I think, is brilliant. Just the way they, they walk in sync, turn the heads in sync, put the guns in the in the waistbands, walk out the cafe. Um, yeah, great, great end to the, uh, to the film. And, and that's where it ends. So there we go. Whole, whole film, start to finish. Brilliant. I, I really enjoyed it. Like I say, the, the scene, the, the scene with the watch, um, sorry, the, the act with the watch again as i say not not my favorite that's kind of what takes it takes it away from me i think and also i think from from being my favorite film and also i think as i've got older i think a um more of a plot more of a narrative structure is is kind of what i enjoy a bit more in a in a film as well i mean i i still really enjoy films like this that kind of flit around um between like timelines and and mix up uh, again you know i was saying earlier maybe um I prefer Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to, to this nowadays. That you know that does the same thing, but yeah, there's more of a kind of through line through it, I suppose, which is um, yeah maybe kind of just what I slightly missed from from Pulp Fiction. But no, I absolutely loved watching it. It's the first time I'd watched it for for a long time, so I really enjoyed watching it for for this. Um, and then kind of just thinking on it again, um, kind of after I'd watched it, just the final things that came to me were, you know, there's a lot of kind of tender teaching influential kind of parental moments within the film a lot more than I than I thought initially you've got a lot of 
a lot of people who inspire other people or who kind of take care of other people or who influence other people. So you've got walking, um, being that way with, with the young Bruce Willis. Um, you've got Willis and his girlfriend, you know, he's very, apart from the bit where he goes crazy because she didn't bring the watch, you know, he's very kind of, um, uh, tender the way he speaks to her, um, slightly childlike at times. Um, you got Winston Wolf with Jimmy and Jules and Vincent. You know, he's very, at the end, he says, you know, call me Vincent. I'm sorry, call me Winston. Um, you've got, as I mentioned earlier, Wallace, um, Marcellus Wallace and Bruce Willis with the whole, <clears throat> with the old hand up. Um, Jules, the way he was kind of looking after uh, Yolanda, um, Amanda Plummer's character at the end there is, again, there's like tenderness to it. He was, you know, um, trying to trying to look after her. So just a lot of those, um, just a lot of those connections and a lot of those influences within within the film. And there's a lot of um, another thing I noticed was there's a lot of um, kind of pet names used in the film as well. You know, Honey Bunny, Pumpkin, um, uh, uh, Sugar Pop, Uma Thurman, and and um, Vin and uh, John Travolta call each other. You know, kind of cowboy, cowgirl. Um, yeah, a lot of kind of those kind of things as well. So just, I, I didn't know where that kind of, where that kind of comes from or if it was intentional or not, but just something that really kind of stood out to me was, you know, kind of the relationships between people and how they're kind of influential with each other as well. Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty much my, my take on, on Pulp Fiction. And that's it, done. My very first podcast. Um, wow, amazing! So uh, so happy to have to have done it. I think I hit everything that I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, no, absolutely chuffed. And thank you so much to everybody for um, for listening and, and supporting um, me so far. I mean, I've just these early points. Just some of the responses that I've had from people. Um, a couple of old friends that I haven't spoken to for a while have kind of reached out and said they've kind of going to listen to it and um someone's even made me uh, uh a new design for for kind of my logo as well actually which um yeah it's incredible so just big thank you to everybody who's taken any kind of interest or, or even listened to this it's it really means a lot so um yeah i suppose just last couple of things um as i said in kind of my introduction um podcast This is something I'm going to, I'm definitely going to continue with. Um, so I've set up quite a lot of um, kind of social media and my own Patreon um, as well. So if you want to, to follow me on uh, on social media, I have an Instagram uh, at these films are the juice. I've got um, a Twitter handle at films are the juice, and I have a Facebook group. You'll never guess what it is at these films are the juice um so yeah if you'd like to follow me on any of those platforms that would be that'd be brilliant um i also have a patreon in place so if there is anybody who would like to um kind of support the podcast support what i'm doing um there's uh, there's a couple of options there to um kind of pay three pounds a month five pounds a month um on the five pound a month option as well as kind of supporting the podcast and, and what I'm trying to do, um, there'll also be specific votes that you can you can vote for the the films that I talk about. And um, speaking of that, I'm gonna I'm 
going to attempt to try and get two more podcasts in this month. Idea will be to try and release them kind of once, release kind of once a week. Um, so next week, I'm thinking of doing a comedy film. Um, so I've kind of got two two films in mind, which I'll put on my kind of social media. But if there's any, um, actually no, I won't do that. If there's any, I'll just pick one. But if there's any suggestions that anyone has of a film they would like me to do. Um, you can get in touch with me on my social media or you can email me these films are the juice at gmail.com or leave a comment on on spotify um anywhere like that i'll pick it up and and uh, certainly take it into consideration um so yeah next week hopefully i'll do a comedy film and then the weekend after that being it um halloween weekend i'll uh, look to do a horror film as as well that weekend so um so yeah that's what's that's what's coming up um so yeah once again just a huge huge thank you to everybody thank you keep safe keep on trucking speak to you soon